Welcome to High Brown Low Brown, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pond and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In our first episode of 2023, we shine a light on films which explore the dark side of human nature. Steve's pick is Wait Until Dark, in which three criminals terrorise a blind Audrey Hepburn, only to find themselves outwitted one by one. Dan's choice is Devil, in which a seemingly random group of people endure the elevator ride from hell, quite literally. We hope you enjoy our choices, and remember, don't be afraid of the dark, only the things that lurk in it. Mind the spoilers, and enjoy the show. Well, good evening, dear listener. New year, new season of Highbrow, Lowbrow. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. First of all, Steve wants us to wait until dark and venture into an apartment. Steve. Thank you, Dan, and hello, everyone. It's good to be back. My highbrow choice for this first episode of Highbrow, Lowbrow in 2023 is the 1967 classic, Wait Until Dark. It has a really good premise. We begin the film and we see this very glamorous woman called Lisa at an airport. They were taking a flight from Montreal to New York City, and she's actually smuggling heroin in a doll that plays this little tune. But she realizes she's being followed, and she's a strikingly beautiful woman. She bumps into this fellow passenger, uh, a photographer named Sam. She persuades him to take the, the doll home with him with the idea that he can post it or get it to her later. So he takes the doll home to his wife, uh, Susie, who is a blind woman played by Audrey Hepburn. And this is a very powerful performance by Audrey Hepburn. I think it's actually her best dramatic performance. We see all of the struggles she goes through in life because of her disability, a bit because of being blind, but also the the things she does to take joy in her life. She has a very good marriage and she's very practical, but she doesn't realize that basically hell is going to descend on her because of this doll, which is in her possession unwittingly. Three men descend on the apartment while Sam is away. Now, they are all villains to one degree or another. Rote, played by a gloriously malevolent Alan Arkin, is the most dangerous of them and it turns out that he's actually murdered Lisa and stuffed her body in the wardrobe of Susie's apartment. Rote hatches a deal with these two con men, Mike and Carlino. Mike is played by Richard Craner, who you may remember from the Rambo films, a role which he sent up in Hot Shots films. And Carlino is played by Jack Weston, gives a splendid performance here. He mostly played comedic roles, and he's got a touch of comedy here, but he plays it quite straight. So the three of them agree to retrieve the doll from Susie, but Rote is a wonderful send-up, really, of the 1960s hippie, because he's got these kind of retro-coloured, round sunglasses. He's got this pudding bowl haircut. He wears this black bomber leather jacket. He's just an out-and-out creep, and he's got this marvellously malevolent voice that makes him sound like he's stoned half the time. But he's not stoned. He's actually really, really sharp. Mike the Richard Crenna character, is kind of the hoodlum of the heart of gold. And slowly we see him fall for Susie, and he's unable to hurt her, as, as he should. And Carlino is, is really Mike's partner. They need to get the doll off Susie, and because she's blind, they end up portraying a, a series of people. Mike goes into the apartment, and knowing Sam's away, he pretends that he's an old friend of Sam that he served in the Korean War with him. 
they're all army buddies and he, he wants to see he's in town he would want to see if he wants to go for a beer or something and he's charming and Susie is quite taken with him they seem like they have a good rapport but all the time he's he's after the doll now the doll goes here it goes there there's a girl who lives upstairs she has possession for a while and the three bad guys get into a state of heightened anxiety over all this because they're already implicated in a murder but their payday is in this doll. Carlino portrays this police detective who goes around and interrogates Susie because Susie thinks she's called the police. She's actually just called a, a, a call box outside of her house. They've given her the number because Rote had stormed into her apartment earlier pretending to be an old man. And this is the only bit that kind of bothers me. Rote must be some kind of method actor because whenever he goes into the apartment, he always seems to wear these elaborate wigs and puts on these very over-the-top acting voices, and which is like, well, she's blind. I don't quite follow the logic here because Mike and Carlino don't do that. They're all playing different people to try and retrieve this doll. And it starts off as mostly dialogue exchanges, but then Susie gets more and more suspicious. She begins to realise that all is not what it seems, even, even with Mike, who she actually quite likes. She realises that her life is in danger particularly from Rote. Gradually, she begins to see, if that isn't too heavy-handed a metaphor. We head towards a very suspenseful, but also increasingly violent climax. It's very sadistic. Rote turns on Mike and Carlino. Mike and Carlino turn on Rote. But the, the final confrontation is between Rote and Susie. It is absolutely terrifying, because Rote is just like a pure sadist. There's a lot played on the fact that she's blind so the audience is seeing things that she's not seeing and you're like don't turn that way don't he's got a knife or what he's, he's got matches there's a lot of kind of like screaming at the at the television screen like don't do this no he's there and it, it's very very engaging uh well i don't want to give away the ending but it has one of the best jump scares i've ever seen in a film I think jump scares, if, if they're done cheaply, then, I, I mean, anyone can ramp up the soundtrack and just make an unpleasant noise. But a, a genuine jump scare, I'm thinking of the ones like in Jaws, where the, where the head comes through the hole in the boat. Uh, Exorcist Free has a wonderful one in a hospital. Probably the first jump scare I ever saw in a film when I was a kid and I stayed up late to watch Jagged Edge and a fist goes through a window. It's actually a killer who is attempting to kill Glenn Close. And I remember that jump scare, and that introduced me to the jump scare. This has one that ranks very highly. It was based on a play by Frederick Knott, who was a British playwright. He was actually born in China and lived in New York. And according to Wikipedia, it's just three main credits. Dial in for Murder, which was famously filmed by Hitchcock, and I've had the pleasure of seeing on stage. Saw it at Theatre Cluid with Judge Sewell as a detective. Write Me a Murder, which was a big hit when it was staged. It ran for over 100 performances, but sadly has never been restaged. And Wait Until Dark, which had premiered on Broadway the year prior to this film being made and was a huge hit. Lee Remick played Susie and Robert Duvall played Rote. And it's been restaged many times since. It was staged in London in the mid-60s with Honor Blackman as Susie. And it was staged in 1998 with Marissa Tomei as Susie and Quentin Tarantino as wrote, sorry, 2001 was the Tarantino performance. It was during Tarantino's I'm going to be a serious actor and no one's going to stop me phase, which didn't last. It was a big hit on Broadway and within a year, there's a film of it. 
And that's what things were like in the 60s and 70s. Hollywood could do that. And I have a lot of affection and nostalgia for this time in filmmaking history. I think the studios had a lot of programmers who would go out, find a novel that was either a bestseller or just a novel I liked, or a play that they liked. And it was relatively uncomplicated back then to get the rights and turn it into a film. Today, it's much more complicated. Even mega-selling books of which there aren't that many these days, have a much more tortured journey to the screen. The film was directed by Terence Young, British director, who was a veteran of the Second World War. He served in Operation Market God, and he, in the Netherlands he was a tank commander in the Irish Guards. But he's famous for bringing James Bond to the big screen. He directed three of the first four Bond films, Doctor No, From Russia With Love, he didn't direct Goldfinger, that was Guy Hamilton, but then he came back to direct Thunderball. And in addition to these being the earliest and some of the best Bond films, he also was very much entrenched in that clubland London society where Ian Fleming saw Bond as coming from. And Sean Connery wasn't from that. You know, he was an Edinburgh milkman, a bodybuilder. So Terence Young really had to train Sean Connery to be a gentleman and took him to Savile Row, his tailor, he took him to his club, he taught him how to play, play Chemin de Fer, he taught him all the right wines that go with the right foods, and he really moulded Sean Connery into that gentleman, and once you had Sean Connery's kind of natural physicality and sexiness with that Bondian gentleman, he had a pretty dynamic creation there that was just magic on the screen. Sadly, Terence Young's film career outside of Bond was mostly awful. He just became a hack. He probably made a huge amount of money and got very lazy. But some of his films are truly dire. For instance, towards the end of his career, he directed Inchon, which was an absolutely disastrous film about the Korean War with Laurence Olivier playing General Douglas MacArthur and is on lists of the worst films ever made. He's also rumoured, and I think the rumour has been confirmed that he made a propaganda film for Saddam Hussein. <laughs> he went to Iraq and made a film that glorified the uh, Saddam Hussein regime. So, you know, Terence Young didn't always excel himself, but he did some wonderful things. He did things with Bond. And this, I think, is his best film outside of the Bond series. He doesn't fall into his bad habits you know, it's not lazy, it's very well constructed, it's very carefully constructed. It's stagey, there's there's no doubt about that. I mean, if you're one of these people who doesn't like films based on plays, it might not be for you, but it's claustrophobic, so it's going to be kind of stagey. I mean, a lot of films really that are based on plays, the first thing they do is like, oh, we've, we've got to take it out a bit, we've got to spread out the action outdoors a bit, and I was just like, well, that's not really necessary here, because it's all in this basement apartment, so it's naturally very consigned, and it, it's got a great 60s vibe, but it's not like swinging 60s, you know, it's actually kind of sending that swinging 60s vibe up a little bit, because Alan Arkin, who along with Audrey Hepburn walks off with the acting honours, is really just a very um, disturbing hipster. He's a bit like a beatnik left over from the 1950s who stumbled into the wrong decade, <laughs> into the wrong film, and finds himself playing the villain. I cannot commend his performance too highly. I've only seen really a handful of great Alan Arkin films. This one... Uh, the Heart is a Lonely Hunter is, is a wonderful film. Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, maybe a couple of others. I haven't really studied his career at great depth, but he's, he's wonderful here. It has a score by Henry Mancini, which to me just screams 1960s in a good way. 
and I just think it's a fantastic film. You know, there aren't many thrillers, chillers that really move me. I, I think thrillers can be somewhat empty at times, and this really moves me. And I think Audrey Hepburn is just fantastic. I think it was her last great role, actually, because by the time she did this, all of her great roles, like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Funny Face and Sabrina, they, they were all behind her. I guess she was beginning to look a, a bit, uh, not, not look old, but maybe feel kind of old-fashioned and at the times where cinema was going. Because she didn't make a, another film for the best part of 10 years. She was in Robin and Marion seven or eight years later, which is actually really good. It's Richard Lester's serious attempt to look at the Robin Hood myth and she plays Maid Marion to Sean Connery's Robin Hood. That was her last leading role and after that she was only in a couple of cameos and she devoted her life to UNICEF, her favourite charity. I highly recommend it to you. It's just a perfect combination of fantastic script, which I say you don't always get in a thriller, wonderful performances, Good direction from a director who I've said wasn't always up to snuff. Terence Young could be lazy, could make terrible films. When he was on form, he was on fire. And here he's on fire. It's a really good film and it's great to revisit it. And I'm happy to recommend it to you. A few other things. It's a slight mix of genres. It's a home invasion film. Uh, and one of probably the first home invasion films, and they've become a bit more popular in recent years. There's films like Unlawful Entry, and they're usually quite sordid. And probably the biggest influence is definitely an influence on a film like uh, Panic Room with Jodie Foster, directed by David Fincher, one of David Fincher's, uh, shall we say, more lowbrow efforts, definitely a, more of a popcorn David Fincher film. Wait Until Dark seems to be a massive influence on that because again you have the exact same setup you have three villains you have a woman in distress and the villains you have the one who's an out and out psycho the the one who's like a posh boy who's not cut out to be a criminal and the one who's got a heart of gold and who's kind of somehow saves the day with wait until dark the good thing is you, you rarely see sam the husband he's played by Ephraim zimbalist so it's not as if sam is coming on a white charger to save susie Susie has to survive by her own wits and she's certainly at a disadvantage she's outnumbered three to one and she's blind and yet she manages to outwit them all you know I think it's a it might be a stretch to call it a feminist film but certainly a prototype film in which we see a very strong female character and one that you root for so that's my recommendation for this episode wait until dark and what a great recommendation it is too um, oh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, I'd, I'd heard things about it, and I don't know if you'd mentioned it to me before, but certainly watching it. What was the name of the little girl who lived upstairs? Gloria, and she was played by Julie Herod. Because the scene where Gloria is smashing things up, I just mm-hmm. thought, I mean, and Audrey Hepburn is absolutely terrified, as you would be. And then it turns out she's just doing out of badness and what she smashed up was unbreakable stuff. I just thought that for me was one of the most unwatchable scenes just with how cruel can that be? Yeah. And other things where one of the characters, I think it was the Richard Crenna one, was dusting, wiping the surfaces down, obviously to remove fingerprints while he was talking to her. And obviously proving that when you're deprived of one sense, your others are heightened to compensate, that she was able to tell that he'd been wiping down surfaces while he'd been talking to her. You know, little touches like that, I thought, made it very real. Like I said to you before we began recording, it was, it was kind of obvious it was based on the stage, but it was very stagey and confined to, I think, one or two sets at the most. But in the way that worked, the confined space after a while you kind of just got into it and yes alan arkin with his disguises in fact all three of them with their nefarious plot i think it worked really well 
Yeah. And possibly, I think, why it's one of Terence Young's better films is because he had a, such a strong script to work from. It's a shame, in a way, if he just made less films. I mean, some of his films, credits are like The Klansman with Richard Burton and Lee Marvin. Just films that are very, if not outright bad, just very lazy. Um, but when he had a terrific script, he was unbeatable. Um, but I think, yeah, making a film for Saddam Hussein. I yeah. mean, come on. That, <laughs> It's not good. Oh my goodness. Salem the Hero or something. Let's have a look. You've got me interested. I just want to find out a bit more what about was it. it. called? Al Ayam Al Tiwali. Apologies if I pronounced that right, but it's The Long Days. Six hour long biographical account of Saddam Hussein's attempted assassination of Abdir Al Karim Qasim in 1959, co directed and then edited by Terence Young. Oh, it's available yeah. on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> If you really want to. Yeah. I remember, I think I, I switched it on YouTube once and uh, some wag in the comments page said, does any of this remind you of Thunderball? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he had a few hits in his career and we can remember him from the good, for the good times and just maybe brush over the bad ones. It's a bit like Sam Peckinpah in a way. You know, he sometimes he was just, um, yeah. you, you would say he was just slumming it and other times he knocked it out of the park. I get that impression that it depended on what mood he was in and what script he had in front of him. Dan, are you a, are you a fan of home invasion films as, as a horror man? Where, where do you put them in your horror categories? Well, I had the pleasure of watching Violent Night the other day, oh. which is which is a home invasion movie with Santa Claus involved. It depends. I mean, you could say that Die Hard, for example, is a, a version of a home invasion movie. When you can find yourself, and this is why Die Hard works, you've got to keep the pace up yeah. because you can't switch to another scene. You can't switch to another location. It's all in this one area. And where this film works is because it keeps the pace up. It keeps the momentum. Violent Night it stops and starts and it tries to keep, but there are times when it just falters and then picks back up again. So it depends on the home invasion thing. If the pace is kept up, then it's great. Yeah. And I mean, another good home invasion one is Pacific Heights with uh, Matthew Modine, uh, Melanie Griffith and Michael Keaton. Yes. Where he becomes the lodger from hell. But again, that's one where it just keeps turning the screws or another one would be The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which I think is a fantastic film. I mean, Yes, a, yeah. A, I, I, a single white female, maybe? Yeah, you know, so home invasion doesn't have to be kind of, you know, a whole blitzkrieg of people crashing in. Sometimes all it takes is one person just gradually tightening the screws and making your yeah. life a misery. And, and, but it's a sign of the narcissist that these people are often very charming to begin yeah. with, but they become increasingly manipulative and, yeah, they have this hidden agenda, yeah. They seem to be quite popular in the 90s, some of the yes. titles you just mentioned. By the way, have you seen Panic Room? I have seen Panic Room, and yeah. I do like Panic Room, but you're absolutely right, it is more, it is kind of popcorn fincher. It has a lot of fincherisms in it. Yeah, And I like it for that. In fact, when you said it, I thought, oh, maybe that's one I could do in a future episode because it is so popcorn. But it is it is fun. It's one of the few that hasn't seen a release beyond DVD. And I think a lot of people are wondering why it hasn't had a Blu-ray release. And I think that's partly because Fincher wants to do right by it and not just knock out some bare bones Blu-ray release. Because the DVD I have is like three DVDs and it's quite in-depth. And I think he'd want to kind of do something similar for the Blu-ray. It and The Game are two underrated Fincher movies, but Panic yeah. Room holds up very well, I, I think because of the script and also the camera work 
and also the cast. The game, in my mind, tends to stop and start a bit. Each time I watch it, I change my mind on it. Like the first time I saw it in the cinema, I thought this is great. Then I saw it on video and thought, oh, God, this is dull. Then I watched it again a few years later. I thought, oh, this is brilliant. So I've seen it about five times. So at the minute, I think the game is a good movie. I'll ask you again in a week, shall I? Yeah, next time I watch it, it's like, say I say for this podcast, oh, I'll do the game, and then I watch it. A bit like Xanity, I'll probably be going, oh my God, why have I chosen this movie? But yeah. we'll see, we'll see. Well, I think it's interesting because I was reading the reviews of Wait Until Dark, and a lot of them at the time were extremely positive and, and still are, but they say it's a case of suspension of disbelief, like the big jump I mentioned. When you think about it logically, could a man who's been stabbed really fling himself across a room like that? Yeah, and at the same time, when I watched the game, and like you, I, I watched it and thought it was brilliant. I saw it a second time, and the second time I was just like, "How did they know he'd jump off the building at that particular point?" And yeah, you know, things like that. Of course, you're not really supposed to ask those questions if you're really involved with the movie, and yeah. it's it's weird. You can watch it in two completely different modes and have two very different responses. But yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you like this. And, yeah. Uh, I, I think a Frederick Knott's quite sporadic career is probably, I mean, I haven't seen Write Me a Murder. It seems that's a hard one to track down because it's never been restaged. But I, I mean, I do like Dialogue for Murder, but I, I'd say I'd prefer this. I just think this is just more harrowing. Mm-hmm. I saw the film of Dialogue for Murder first, and I think everyone was like, yeah, it's fun, it's, it's good, it's suspenseful, but it's uh, kind of a minor Hitchcock. I uh, think it's a minor Hitchcock because he was filming that in 3D, wasn't he? Oh, is that? Was that one of the first 3D films? It was one of the first 3D films, and certainly Grace Kelly, he was so tied up with the technicalities, she felt he was unable to kind of, didn't have enough time to devote to her, and so she's not happy with her performance. She had a far happier time in Rear Window, I believe, because the the way the set was sunk, he got all the technicalities out of the way before they started filming, and then he could work with the actors on their performances. I think that's partly why Dialem for Murder suffers, is because there was a lot of technical issues behind the scenes and that's what took up a lot of Hitchcock's time so she had such a rotten time that she married a royal and moved to the south of France is that what you're saying <laughs> no no I think she wasn't happy with her performance in Dial for Murder because I think that was was that one of her first movies after High Noon I'm guessing yeah well she didn't do that many did she yeah, yeah. yeah. so I think she wanted more direction from her director Mm-hmm. and he couldn't give it to her because he was so busy sorting out the, the technical side, the 3D stuff. So with Rear Window, with the interesting set that they have that's actually sunk into the studio floor, I think he'd got all that out of the way before filming, so he knew what he was doing technically-wise, and then he could work with James Stewart and her on their performances. He had more time to spend with his actors. Weren't you described as a director's actor when you were in Amdram? Well, that's an interesting phrase. I mean, I was very shy. I wanted to play English gentleman roles, which was just kind of how I felt. And the director was like, that's totally boring. You wouldn't be challenging yourself at all. So he gave me the most outrageous roles he could find. I mean, I say they're outrageous, but I mean, the ghost in Hamlet or Walton in Frankenstein. And he was always pushing me, be louder, be more out there, be more outre. And he was right. And it, it, it really, you know, helped my confidence and it helped me to do it. But yeah, I think I wouldn't have been able to do that without a lot of directorial um, pushing and, and quite specific directions. I, I was really finding it hard to, you know, just find my feet as an actor. So I, I sympathise with Grace Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you weren't method then, dear boy. 
No, I wasn't method. I did surprise a lot of people by shaving my head to play the ghost. <laughs> that was at the director's request. And I right. was like, sure, I'll do that. I wouldn't be allowed to do that today. Mrs. Powell wouldn't approve, you know. And I think you get to you get to a certain age where you're like, well, if you if you've got a nice head of hair, then then use it, you know, to keep yeah. it. No, I, I can't say I, I was method. No, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear that, dear boy. Glad to hear that. I, I was more Olivier than Dustin Hoffman, dear boy. <laughs> yeah. you, you just acted, dear boy. <laughs> yes. You hit your marks and you said your lines. Good lad. Yes. Well done. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah. Right. So, shall I move on to mine? Please do. Yeah. Okay. Mine is the 2010 film Devil. Now, it's often seen as an M. Night Shyamalan movie, and it's not really. He produced it and he wrote the story for it, but it's sometimes lumped in with his filmography. But we'll come to that in a second. So Devil is what would have been, in days of yore, a B-movie. It's short, it's got a cast of faces that you would recognise, but you'd be struggling to think, where did I see them before? Which is where IMDb comes in, obviously. It doesn't hang about, it just gets straight into the plot. You might argue that some character development suffers, but it's just a nice, succinct little thriller. And it's mostly set in an elevator, set in a high-rise building. So it starts with a suicide. Well, it starts with a biblical verse appearing on your screen. First letter of St. Peter, chapter 5, verse 8, which reads, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then a voice, which later turns out to be one of the security guards, um, tells a story about his childhood, where his mum explains the circumstances about the devil roaming the earth. I say it starts with a suicide, a man jumping from the skyscraper, leaving a suicide note about the devil. This is when we're introduced to the cop, Detective Bowden, played by Chris Messina, who discovers the body on top of a truck, but then works out because there's no glass around the truck, the truck must have moved. And that brings him to the skyscraper to investigate this. At the same time, an elevator gets stuck with five people inside. You have a temporary security guard, a mechanic, who's also a former soldier, a mattress salesman, a young woman, and an elderly woman. Although there's no fault showing on the board about the elevator, it's obviously not moving when it should. And what is worse is that every time the lights go out, something happens. During one interval, one of the security guards, Ramirez, who's the one who did the opening narration, thinks he sees a face on the monitor of the security camera. But his partner, Lustig, who's more atheist, dismisses it and says, oh, it's just a glitch in the video or something. What starts with the young woman feeling something on her back and then discovering she has bite marks and the mattress salesman has blood on his hands. And it plays with you. So you think the mattress salesman is up to something. But then the next time the lights go out, there's a sound of smashing glass and you find that the lights come back on and he's got a jar of glass impaled in his jugular vein so then it becomes a crime scene and of course the detective is getting involved in this and watching them on the security cameras they can hear him but he can't hear them so they're gesticulating to him he's saying to them everybody stand with your hands on the wall not looking at each other and when the lights flicker they then get their mobile phones out to try and keep the place lit but that doesn't work then more people start getting injured it turns out the security guard is claustrophobic the repairman that they send to try and fix the lift. He dodges death the first time, he's not so lucky the second, and he lands on the roof of the elevator. And there's moments like that where then the occupants of the lift can hear what's being said over the walkie-talkie, which they're not meant to hear. Ramirez tells the detective what he's seen, and the detective is kind of like the agnostic of the piece. 
So Ramirez is the believer. Detective Bowden is the agnostic and Lustig is the absolute atheist kind of saying, oh, don't say stuff like that, you know. But then Detective Bowden, who has his own backstory, which we'll come to, he thinks, well, okay, if the devil was involved, what would happen next? So he's drawn into this. Again, the viewers kind of, well, you know, maybe it is, or maybe it's just a series of unfortunate events, but there's obviously something going on. As the film goes on, you then find that everybody has a backstory. The security guard has a history of violence. One of the occupants ripped people off in a Ponzi scheme. Someone else is a former soldier. Someone else has been seen stealing somebody's handbag on the security camera. And one of the occupants also killed the detective's family in a hit-and-run accident. So everybody's got the backstory. And as the film progresses, then the backstories come out. And then you, it's very good. You, you keep thinking, everybody you think, oh, it must be them. Every time the lights go out, there's a sudden twist. So I'm not going to spoil the ending, but it does resolve itself. And I didn't see the twist coming. And it is a nice, compact story. Now, if you think, oh, that plot sounds very familiar. Yes, the producers did acknowledge that it owes a certain nod to And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie which has the same idea, people in the location, they've each got their backstory and they get bumped off one by one. But I suppose if you're going to rip something off, or shall I be diplomatic and say pay homage to it, then why not go with a Christie classic? And it is, it's very well done. It makes the most of its £10 million budget in its enclosed space. It does work really well. And each time the lights go out, you are thinking, oh, what's going to happen now? What are we going, the lights are going to come out up again and what are we going to discover? Like I said, in days of yore, it would have been a B-movie. A cast of faces who normally would be supporting roles in other things. The one that I did recognise upon repeat viewing was Logan Marshall Green, who's gone on to do stuff like Upgrade and The Invitation, and Chris Messina, who I've seen in um, Argo. Chris played Malinov in Argo. And also, it's running time. It's running time is about 80 minutes, so it's quite compact. Like any good movie, it starts and just keeps going and going. Like I said at the beginning, in days of yore, this would have been a B-movie or part of a double bill or be on Netflix or something. It wasn't released as such. It was released as an A-movie. So one of the criticisms, of course, was it's running time. People would pay their money like you would go and see any other movie in the cinema, and you'd be in and out in 80 minutes. So um, that was one of the things that it got criticised for. Also, M. Night Shyamalan wasn't in the best place in his career at this point. So I didn't go and see it in the cinema. I waited until it came out in video and then I watched it, which you don't feel quite so ripped off in that respect. He'd done Lady in the Water. Then he'd done The Happening, that awful one with Mark Wahlberg, where it's the trees killing people. And trust me, dear listener, I'm doing your favour by telling you the ending. Then at the same time, Yes, I know, it's kind of an ecological film, and you just think, what? Then, at the same time, he had The Last Airbender out, which wasn't doing well at all. So his involvement in this may well have put people off, or, like myself, I still kind of was tolerant of him, and waited until it came out in video and then bought it. So, I mean, he did the story, he co-produced it, the screenplay was written by somebody else and then directed by John Eric Dyle. And there's a lot of little trickery in it. The camera does make the most of kind of zooming in and out of lift shafts, and things like that. With its 80 minutes runtime, it would be better as a double bill with something else. And it was meant to be part of a series called The Night Chronicles, but numbers two and three of that have yet to be produced. In fact, one of the plots, or possibly the third one in The Night Chronicles, was spun off into the sequel to Unbreakable, which was split. So whether we'll see the second one, I don't know. 
for me, it works really well. It's just a nice compact movie. It tells a nice story. If it had been longer, would it have been a better movie? I don't know. I don't think so. I think what helps it is its brevity. Yes, maybe it might be useful to get um, a bit more development of some of the characters you feel are a bit one-dimensional, like Ramirez. You don't learn too much about him, apart from the fact he's quite religious. But I think it does it well, and I enjoyed it. I think it could do with better recognition. It's not perfect, but if you want just a brief movie, which starts off and never really lets up, then why not? And keeps you guessing. What did you make of it? I liked it. I felt that sometimes it was, like you say, in the fact that you couldn't decide if it's a B movie or, or an A movie, it should be on a double bill. Because I actually thought what the opening scene where um, Christmas Cena is with his AA sponsor in the diner talking about, you know, his, his addiction, which was a consequence of the grief of bereavement, losing his, his wife and child, was quite heartfelt. And then it veers much more into generic territory. I'm like you, I did not see that twist coming. And I think they hit that well. The fact that uh, Logan Marshall Green was the driver who killed Christmas Eve's wife and child. Because if anything, he's the most clean person in the lift. You've got the Ponzi fraudster and you've got the lift operator who's got a tendency to violence. The old woman, I was convinced, was Shirley MacLaine. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't she look like her a bit? She does, yes, she does. I was just like, oh, blimey, she's slumming it a bit. And then I was just like, did did they deliberately make her up to look like that to maybe increase the box <laughs> office? I, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I liked it. And even though there was a couple of moments that were a bit cheesy and, and that there's a moment where someone's being killed in the lift and, and I think, is it Ramirez? Yeah, you say Ramirez is the religious one. He's not looking because he's got his eyes closed and his hands outstretched in prayer. And you're just like... Do your job for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I thought it was pretty good. And I'd probably say, because you're right, this was a low point in M. Night Shyamalan's career. In fact, Mark Kermode started calling him M. Night Shem about the last film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and the only one I saw of that really rotten period was The Happening, which is just dire, like you say. I'm glad he didn't direct it. It's better that he took a more hands-off approach and and then we get it in for a nice few minutes because I think all of the um, plaudits he got for Sixth Sense or... And to a lesser degree, I mean, it seemed like with each film he was losing some people. I mean, like an unbreakable loss, some people, because it wasn't Sixth Sense. And then... Was it The Village? He did Signs, which I liked. And then he did The Village. Right. And it was by the village I was thinking uh, he's getting to be a bit of a one-trick pony, this guy. Yeah. And then Lady in the Water I didn't see in the cinema, but I bought on DVD and watched this and thought, oh. and the same with the happening. I thought, oh. Didn't even bother with The Last Airbender. I kind of got back into him with The Visit, which wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Split took me a couple of goes. Obviously, it was the a sequel or kind of sidequel, so we say, to Unbreakable, which was then going to be round up by Glass. And I do have a lot of time for Unbreakable. Glass, well, it wasn't the worst. I mean, it's not the best he's done, but he's, he's done far worse. Old, uh, I tried to get into old. And then he's got one coming out this year called Knock at the Cabin. I've kind of got to the stage where I probably wait until it comes out on streaming before I watch it. I think the days when we go into the cinema to see an M. Night movie are gone, whereas previously I would have gone, oh, it's a new one, let's go, let's go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not anymore. Like I say, by the time of the village, I was beginning to think, and then Lady in the Water was just, <laughs> what's going on in this movie? And then, like I say, the happening is just, oh, what? It's the trees. 
Well, I didn't see Lady... I mean, I was put off by the reviews. And again, because I quite like Mark Commode and, and Mark Commode really took against M. Night Shyamalan. But he made, Commode made the point in Lady in the Water, the person who has the worst death, isn't he a critic himself? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Commode thought that was a real cheap shot at yeah. uh, film critics who uh, perhaps been unkind. But as, as he put it, it's just like, hey, when we love your films, you're more than happy to paste our quotes all over the poster. You know, so. mm. Yes, Lady in the Water was written, I believe, as a, a bedtime story for one of his kids. And I thought to myself, that's how it should have stayed. Yes. And I'm sure it helped the kid get to sleep really quickly. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're so, you and, know. Uh, doesn't he do Hitchcock-type cameos? I didn't see him in this, or at least I didn't think I saw him. He wasn't in this, yes, but he, he does do Hitchcock-type cameos apart from... But then that's the thing, as the film goes on, he then actually becomes more prominent in that until almost he's like a supporting member of the cast. And whereas Hitchcock did it right just by popping in, and, you know, and he kept it just about right in his early ones. Later on, when he's writing himself in as a character, you think you're overreaching yourself on this one. Some people should just stay behind the camera. I mean, you never saw Hitchcock as a supporting actor, did you? No, no, you didn't. And I think Hitchcock's rule was try and get it done in the first 10 minutes so the audience isn't distracted looking for you. Yeah. I mean, the Sun directors were decent-ish actors, but they tend to act in other people's films. I mean, we think Cronenberg's a decent actor. Um, yeah. Scorsese's made a couple of appearances, and because we were talking about Tarantino earlier, um, that was slightly different, because I think, unlike Cronenberg or Scorsese, Tarantino really wanted to be one of the great actors, like the type he'd work with, like Harvey Keitel or De Niro. Or, oh, no. Uh, and it, and it, it really it really didn't work. Uh, no, I think um, having him as a support, uh, and but having a cast of good actors around him in From Dust Till Dawn helped that movie. And I think yeah. having George Clooney as the lead front and centre was probably the best move. Giving Tarantino a bit of plot, but then killing him off, thankfully, <laughs> I think helped that movie no end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yes, he does have a, a scene with Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. Um, I've forgotten how he appears in Signs, but I just thought in one of them he does in, in this kind of almost like a supporting actor, and it, it isn't helping. I'm, I'm not going to try and remember which one it was because I think we're getting into Lady in the Water and Happening Territory. And the, uh, the less I think about those, the better it is for my sanity, really. So, has the director of this done anything uh, before or since? Let's have a look. Oh, he did. Uh, of the remake of the Spanish film Wreck Quarantine, which isn't bad, but it's pointless. It's almost a shot for shot, but not quite as good remake of Wreck. Then he did one called As Above, So Below, and then one called No Escape. And then he's worked in television, did a drama about the Waco siege. Hasn't had the most prolific of careers. I think he's working in television now. And the writer, Brian Nelson, he's a name that seems familiar. He Oh, he did Hard Candy, which if you haven't seen it, that is a good one. Quite tough to watch in some places, but it is a good one. And 30 Days of Night. Brian, again, not most prolific, but what he has written tends to be quite good. You know what this reminded me a little bit of? And maybe it was a more emotional reaction. It reminded me a bit of Red Eye by Wes Craven. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and in good and bad ways, because I, I quite liked Red Eye, but there were times when it was just like, I've, I've been on flights like that. I mean, not flights where a terrorist was planning to, you know, assassinate a, a senator or whatever it was, but, you know, flights where it's been that tense and unpleasant and you know, everybody's getting shirty with each other. I think there were just moments in this where it was just like, oh, gosh, I'd, I'd hate to be stuck in a lift ever. You know? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I mean, I, I've been stuck in a lift, but thankfully never, never with a bunch of people like that. At least it did keep you guessing. And yeah, it did. Like... And it was interesting. Was it what Ramirez is saying about the nature of the devil? And that quote at the beginning about the realms of seeking whom he may devour is how the devil is turning them against each other because he knows their weaknesses. Because at the start, you're not, you're not sure is this going to be purely naturalistic or is the supernatural element purely in their minds? Yes. Is it Ramirez adding in this thing, whereas really it's a, it's a series of unfortunate accidents? Which incidentally is how Donner sell, sold The Omen to Gregory Peck. He didn't want to make a satanic movie and Donner said to him, well, look, I don't think of it as a satanic movie, thinking of it as a series of unfortunate accidents that somebody is attributing to the devil. So I thought, watching this as well, I thought, is this the same? Is it Ramirez going off the deep end, attributing all this to the devil because he's quite religious? In which case, is it having a pop of Christianity? Or is the devil really at work here? So I like the way I kept you guessing on that. And, of course, Detective Bowden being the doubting audience, flipping one way and the other. Glad you enjoyed it too, boy. So. Oh, yes, I, I know. I, I was, it was interesting. It hadn't been on my radar at all, so it was, it was definitely interesting. Saying it was an M. Night movie, I thought might be a tough sell. But, <laughs> was, you know, that's what I thought it emphasised. He was involved with it, but really, it's although it's seen as one of his, it's not one of his, and maybe that's to its eternal benefit well yeah we might reach the stage where directors want his name taken off the film you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. but no i mean uh, he is obviously a hugely talented director we just like terence young we seem to uh, maybe the theme of this episode should be like rogue elephants or something <laughs> people who just hugely talented men who, who who have a tendency of making awful films for for whatever reason <laughs> laziness ego <laughs> uh, Spice, I don't know. <laughs> um, art, dear boy. It's art. It's not awful. It's art. It's just you just don't understand it. It's, yes. that's, that's it. I suppose you could always say, oh, well, 30 years from now, it'll be considered a masterpiece. Or, oh, they loved it in France. Or yes. <laughs> the usual, whatever the usual excuses are, you know. Or maybe they'll say, you know, with global warming, he was right at the happening. It is the trees killing us, really. He saw it all coming and we didn't believe him. That's revenge for, for building houses in the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that got past the studio, but somehow it did. It's a very hard thing to show dramatically, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Killer trees, yes. Yeah. Um, What's the William Friedkin film where they have to chop the tree down? because it's even... Oh, The Guardian? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's no. basically the opposite of a tree hugging movie. Yes, Jenny Seagrove is the kind of epitome of the or the human form of this killer tree or something like that. I watched this and I thought I've no idea what's going on in this movie. It's just you know I'm um, sure yeah. the, the plot's just taking a dive out the window somewhere. Um, How you can go from the Exorcist to, to the Guardian? <laughs> yes, yes, from the Exorcist to the Guardian. Um, I'm sure there's something in his autobiography about it, <laughs> which I might dig out and try and find out, but I'm sure he, if you haven't read his autobiography, dear listener, at least he's professionally honest about his uh, movie choices, the good and the bad. So he, he is, Well, I, I did read it, and I don't know if there's an expanded edition somewhere, but the version I read, the Friedkin Connection, he bypassed that one, he, he bypassed two, it was that one and Deal of the Century. Right which I haven't seen, but I've heard awful things about. He's honest about some of his other clunkers, but maybe those two are so bad that there's nothing to be said for them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, Just so. say nothing. 
maybe yeah. people will forget them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's. Uh, oh well, thought he might try and atone for that, like he atoned for some of his other choices, like not casting McQueen and Sorcerer and calling it Sorcerer instead of just the Wages of Fear. Oh well, the beast is honest. Yeah. Well, thank you, dear listener. We hope you've enjoyed this episode about claustrophobic chillers. Do check out these films. Perhaps you shouldn't watch them alone, and please don't have nightmares. In all seriousness, they are very good films, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we enjoy talking about them. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.